hello, hello, people. I hope you guys are staying safe first of all, and you are washing your hands. It's very important to wash your hands. <laughs> so, for our first time listeners, this is the episode forty of Misfits, where I speak. To the rebels, the outliers, and the unconventionals, I try to see things how they see it and to learn from them. So some of these people and guests include Betty Lee, who did her first solo travel at the age of sixty. We have Taking Soon, which is the legendary architect behind People's Park Complex, um, uh, which is the building, the first sort of uh, multi-story shopping residential building in the uh, Singapore. Before that, it was all uh, shop houses. And then we have T- uh, Agent Pang, the uh, Hollywood actor, and a whole lot more. So today on the show, we have Derek Silvers. Silvers. So he is kind of a accidental and reluctant. Entrepreneur, circus musicians, and these days he is a author. In 2008, Derek created CD Baby, and it became the largest seller of independent music online, with more than 100 million dollars in sales and 150,000 musicians. Ten years later, in 2008, Derek sold CD Baby for 22 million, giving his proceeds to a charitable trust for music education. So. After that, he went on to speak at the TED conference, not the TEDx, the TED conference, for three times in a row in 2010, which is kind of unheard of. And his talk has a total of more than 18 million view today. So since 2011, he has then published 34 books, including Anything You Want, which chronicles 40 lessons learned、uh, from starting CD Baby. This I love, love so, so, so much. Please get yourself the book. And today in this conversation, we spoke about what Derek loved about Singapore, things he learned about sex, capital S,、um, how and when to use feelings when making decisions. And I just want to say that this is one of my favorite, favorite interviews. I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I do. Yeah, we're gonna do lightning rounds from the start. Okay, well, welcome to the podcast, lightning rounds, Derek Sivers. I don't know how many questions there are, but it's gonna be questions and answer. Derek, you ready? I'm ready. Lightning round, begin. Why start doing podcast interviews again? I enjoy the questions, and I enjoy the challenge of coming up with new answers every time. Why say yes to my podcast invite when you have to turn down four other people on the same day? Because I care about you, Brian. <laughs> We have been emailing since 2016, and I've been really excited to see your path. Why not talk about the coronavirus or businesses on podcast interview? Because I just have nothing new to say about those things. I feel like everybody else is focused on the virus and on business, and I have nothing to add. On your blog post, civis.org/laws. The woman I was madly in love with married the man she would always complain to me about. So, did you got divorced twice? What's the story behind this, and what did you learn from it? Um, I've been married twice, but neither one was a decision to spend our lives together. Both were actually just a necessary document we needed to let us travel over international borders. Anything. That we should prep before marriage, prenups. <laughs> uh, you really don't know a person until you've seen them lose their luggage. So go on adventures together, but also have monotony together.、Um, what do you like about models by Mark Manson, and where is it lacking to a fulfilling relationship? <laughs> the book Models by Mark Manson 
is the wisest, most philosophical book for men about women I've ever found. It's lacking nothing. It's great. Go read it. How does a programmer, aka Derek Sivers, create a system to dating? I have no system for that. <laughs> I think with all of us, we have places in our life that are in order and places that aren't. So no, I have no order or system for dating. Sorry. How much should you trust your feelings when you pick your wife or a life partner? Feelings change over time. So don't trust feelings. Trust time. Don't pick until you've spent time, so that you can see your feelings change over time. What are three interesting things you learned about sex? <laughs> Everyone's approach is different.、Uh, you have to communicate, and some people click physically, even if they don't emotionally or intellectually. How do you become a resident in Singapore? Do you have to give up your U.S. citizenship? And if not, like how Singapore citizenship? I heard that you need to give up residency. Two things get confused: residency and citizenship. So residency is the right to live somewhere. Citizenship is the passport. So、um, I became a resident through the financial investor scheme back in 2010. It was a little different then. And then after living in Singapore for a few years, I applied for Singapore citizenship. And yes, if you get Singapore citizenship, then you have to give up your other citizenships. But my application for Singapore citizenship is still pending. I don't know what's up. It's been pending for a year and a half, so I'll worry about that if it happens. What surprised you about Singapore after you lived here? How many Singaporeans told me that they didn't follow their dream, that they wanted to be a musician or an artist or a painter, but instead they did what their family told them to. And at first, when I moved there, I came there with my very California American individualism, and I thought, no, that's wrong, that's horribly wrong. You need to follow your heart and do whatever you want. But it, after a while, I really got to understand that mindset better. And understand, it's just another way of looking at it. It's not right or wrong, or I just got—I should under—I I guess I understood that it's—it was also an, an equally right way of looking at things. But that was my biggest surprise when I first arrived. Tell me more about the Singapore government. What do you think the role of the Singapore government is different in Singapore than the rest of the world? I think the main difference is that in the rest of the world, when people say bureaucracy. They mean it as a bad thing, but the Singapore government is so well run. Bureaucracy is actually a good thing.、Uh, I think learning how the government is run is a little bit like looking under the hood of a Ferrari. It's like it's a really impressive machine. I've talked with consultants from around the world that you know that come from places like New Zealand or Finland that we also admire. And I've heard them all say that when they did consulting in Singapore for the Singapore government, that they've never been so impressed. And I kind of felt the same way moving there. So you say that Singapore was founded on ideals of the Age of Enlightenment. So why do you say that about Singapore? And you also, and why is also Singapore influenced by Confucianism? The Age of Enlightenment quote was something I actually just got from the Discovery Channel、uh, documentary about Singapore. So that's not my own opinion. I was just echoing what I heard, and I really don't know 
anything hardly about Confucianism. But the thing that I said earlier about people doing what's best for their family or even their country instead of only following their own individual preference. I think that of that as relative to the culture I grew up in in California as being kind of uh, the Confucianism influence. Who do you think are the real government system designers in Singapore? I have no idea. <laughs> as amazing as it is, it's also very uh, opaque. How's mentoring in EDB spring and ace? What do you do as a mentor? And uh, you know what is the role of a mentor over there? Well, it was 10 years ago, so I'm, I'm sure it's changed since then. But at the time, I just helped judge a couple like startup competitions. and But mo more than anything, I just met with lots and lots and lots of young entrepreneurs, sometimes even, you know, high school teenagers, but um, like through these programs that were encouraging entrepreneurship, uh, people that wanted to start a business and I would help give them advice or feedback on their thoughts. That's all. What are the three most interesting or memorable person you've met in Singapore? Meng Wang Wong, formerly oh. of JFDI. Pete Kellogg, formerly of, uh, his company was called Movie, and Lucien Teo, who, when I met him, he was working inside the government, and now, uh, last I heard, he was working inside Google, uh, helping keep the internet safe for kids. How do you disagree well, and if you could define that, and so that you make a person see that their own bias without them being defensive? And when you're asked a loaded question, how do you un answer them? I'm always happy to disagree with the question. I think that's a really useful technique to disagree with someone's question instead of feeling you have to answer it. Like, so if somebody says, for example, uh, how can we get over our fears? I'll say, no, no, you shouldn't get over your fears. Uh, you should get under them, maybe, but don't get over them. So I think it's really healthy to remember that you always have the option to disagree with the question instead of answering it. Why do you think that Seth told you to, if you care, sell your company? And looking back, would you have said the same to yourself then? Okay, so what you're asking about is when Seth Godin in 2007, or when I was thinking of selling CD Baby and the idea was radically uh, shocking to me, I had never, ever, ever considered it until that day. So I asked Seth Godin for his advice. And yeah, he said, if you care, sell. That's all he said. And what I think he meant is that I was doing a disservice to my clients by remaining the leader of a company that I didn't want to improve anymore. I was personally just feeling done with it. Um, so yes, I think it was very great, wise advice. And through your relationship with Seth Godin, what did you learn from him? And what do you think makes him special? Oh, Seth Godin is surprisingly wise. I already know he's wise, but he keeps impressing me with how wise he is. He's incredibly gracious, um, considerate, and encouraging. I think his special skill is he makes other people feel special. So in the, your blog post article, Silverstock slash mistakes, how do you settle your $3.3 million mistake? I, I didn't settle it. <laughs> it was just a massive $3.3 million mistake that I had to pay for. 
CD Baby was profitable at the time. So luckily I had $3.3 million, but it kind of, you know, it was all I had at the time. It was a huge mistake. And um, yeah, that's life. In your article, Sivis.org slash loss, will you be open to talk about this losses and your lessons that you learned from the losses? I think the, the lesson I learned is that the hardest times are when you learn the most. Um, so don't wish not to have them. Don't avoid mistakes. Uh, just make sure that you reflect on your mistakes and learn from them. Uh, I think one of the best ways to do this is to write in your journal every day so that your future self can look back to see how you really felt then, which is now. Um, because you'll find that anything that felt like a huge problem then, which is now, won't you will have completely forgotten about it 10 years from now or maybe even one year from now. So I think it's amazing to keep a journal, especially during tough times, so that you can look back at it and realize that the things you were worried about were nothing to worry about. In the context of life, where do you think feelings, the word quote-unquote, stands? And should we use it at all to make decisions and how? I believe two conflicting things. So first... I believe that our emotions contain the wisdom of everything we've learned. Like everything you've ever taken in, everything you've ever read or learned or thought gets stored as feelings. So when you have a gut reaction to something, it actually is the wise culmination of everything you've ever learned. So you should trust it. Um, there's a great book about that called How We Decide by Jonah Lehrer. But on the other hand, I also believe number two, <laughs> that our emotions can be easily manipulated by ourselves and others. So we shouldn't trust our feelings. Um, perhaps you can even deliberately manipulate your feelings to match the facts. Uh, there's a great video about this called Hypnoti How to Hypnotize Simon Pegg by Darren Brown. Go search for that on YouTube. And it's a great, succinct five-minute example of how it can make more sense to make your feelings match the facts instead of trying to make the facts match your feelings. Do you feel that you know yourself? And what are the best tools, 80-20, to know yourself? And why are they the best tools? And so then the question becomes, how does one learn about themselves? I know a lot about myself, but I think that the unconscious things are still unconscious by definition. Um, so I'm not aware of those things. Sometimes I cry at things that surprise me and I don't know why I'm upset or, about something. So that's still unconscious. But I think the best way to know yourself is to write privately, to journal, to diary, um, which means ask yourself questions and then question your answers. Don't just answer, don't just answer questions and just leave it at that. Look back at whatever you just answered and try doubting it. Say, well, what if that's not true? You know, here's what I want to do with my life and you write it down and then you can look at it and say, well, what if that's not true? <laughs> what if that's not what I really want? So um, I think so, but most importantly, Instead of just observing your words, observe your behavior. Use your journal to record your behavior 
so that you can look back to see what you actually do, not just what you say. Ultimately, what you say doesn't matter as much as what you do. Well, how do you define personal value, and how do you find yours, which is learn and create? So, if that's the case, then is learning a one, or is it、uh, a need? And then also, well, why create? I, I define the difference between want and need pretty harshly.、Uh, need to me is basically you, know, you, you need to、uh, stay alive. <laughs> Everything else is kind of a want, but I think your values change depending on the situation. So, if at some point in your life you're lacking money, well, then money suddenly becomes your top value. I need to make money. But then, if your health goes bad, suddenly you don't care about money as much. Like health is now your main. Value being healthy,、um, so I think it's interesting to note among those changes which values seem to always be there for you no matter what happens in life. Like,、um, yes, for me it's learning and creating, as you saw on my site. But for somebody else, it might be charitable, charitable giving, or、um, taking care of others, or spirituality, or money, whatever it may be. Just notice which things are always there for you, no matter what happens in life. But understand that the rest of your values are ever changing, and、uh, don't be afraid to to embrace that change. That even though if you've loudly told somebody last year that this is your top value, and suddenly life changes, then you can just admit, like, okay, my values have changed because the situation has changed. So, what is your monthly burn rate that you set for yourself,、um, and how do you know that that is enough for you to be truly ever satisfied with with life, and that you don't need to work for money anymore? I think the only way to know, I mean, for myself, I I don't keep a a journal budget anymore, partially because I move around too much, and there are expenses in moving that are gone six months later, and then return six months later when I move again, but. I think you have to experiment to find out、um, that you have to try living well below your means to know if you can.、Um, it makes you face what's really important to you. There might be a lot of optional things we have that we don't really need. I actually feel sad whenever I see some multimillionaires. Disgusting giant mansion. I think there was just something last week on like Drake, you know, the、uh, singer from Toronto. Somebody posted like a pictures, a tour of the inside of his mansion. I just it made me sad. All this unnecessary stuff. It seems like somebody who is getting less and less aware of what's important and what's not.、Um, so for me, like for one little example, I'm personally happy. Eating on five dollars a day, I'm just not that into food. But for somebody else, that would make life not worth living for them. So, but on the other hand, I like to have a nice computer because I just type all day long. Whereas somebody else, they probably don't care about a computer. If they have a cheap Android phone, that's fine for them. But it's really important that they eat nice meals. You know, you just have to know your own personal value system. But definitely challenge yourself to see how little you can live on, because it gives you an incredible sense of security to know that you can live on very little and know what's truly important.
Well, why do you think that people ask the question, "What is the purpose of life?" <laughs> I think they're just annoyed at the uncertainty of it all.、Uh, they want more certainty in their life.、Um, also, everybody always wants to know what they should be doing. So, why do you want to think slowly or to be unreactive in interviews? So, is this the same when you are in conversations with your friends, or were you like that since young? If not, what made you decide to change your mind? I think it's different when I know I'm being recorded, <laughs>、um, because then I know that it's archived forever. But also when I do things in public. I'm very aware of the microphone. Like if I'm doing in, if I'm doing something in public, I'm doing it for the public. I'm very aware of my two hundred thousand followers. So if I say something into the microphone, that means I believe that it's worth their time to stop and listen. And I think that's why I don't post nonsense or lightly share random things.、Um, And so that's why I found it useful to take my time to to think slowly instead of thinking I have to fill up space and speak nonsense. And when did that change for you、uh, for this public thing? Well, it just changes when I'm public versus not public. So in yeah in private, I don't have that same filter. Good friends and I will just sit around and. Bad ideas back and forth, but you know you got to understand. I, for 15 years of my life, I made my living on stage. I've performed on stage over a thousand times, and I think it's just kind of,、um, you know, I learned that it's like okay, I'm on stage now, and now I think even with social media, whatever, I still, I feel that feeling of like okay, now I'm, the microphone is on, I'm on stage, say something important. Why do you choose to take on the job of replying emails? Was it 550 emails a day? You know, and do you actually enjoy it? Like, what do you enjoy about it? I enjoy the connection. And by the way, to be fair, it isn't usually 550 a day. It's usually more like 30 a day. But yeah, there was.、Uh, I sent out something to everybody on my list and started getting 500 a day. And so yeah, for a couple weeks, it was all I did, and it was 500 a day. But more than anything, it's a huge sense of security for me. Knowing so many people around the world is a really great feeling.、Um, it's really secure to know people all around the world, but also it's really interesting to know people from different places or careers, right? Like,、uh, like a guy emails me and he's a professional athlete in Uruguay. I'm、like wow, I know an athlete in Uruguay now. Somebody else emails me and he's a, a piano builder in Russia. I'm like, how cool! I know a guy that builds pianos in Russia. And then I get an email from this really cool dude in Singapore who's getting to know the Misfits. Ah. <laughs> well, so why don't you do public speaking anymore? Is it because you don't like the format, or do you think that the rich isn't enough for you? Um, I think even as a musician. I've always been more interested in recording and sharing my work with the whole world, instead of just one room of people somewhere.、Um, it might just be the introvert thing too. I just don't like being in crowds. That doesn't excite me. It drains me. But 
more than anything, it feels like if I'm going to spend a lot of time preparing, because I always do, I always spend a lot of time preparing. So then it feels like a bit of a waste to prepare so much for something that's going to just be to one room of people and that's it. I really want everything I do to be recorded and shared with the whole world. Well, why do you take on the label as an author and does it help you with your life? I just recently realized that being an author is the activity that I find most interesting right now. So by calling myself an author, it's kind of like doubling down on that thing. Whereas before I said, I'm an entrepreneur and a programmer and sometimes I share what I learn. I didn't think of myself as a writer and so therefore I wasn't spending much time doing it. But yeah, with a little little soul searching, I asked myself, who are my heroes? And I realized, I think I really want to be an author. And so that giving myself that title made me take it more seriously and therefore spend more time doing it and less time doing the other things. You seem to be very happy taking care of your son. Were you always this happy? Because in one of your uh, articles, um, you seem to say that it is you being actually selfish. Or did you know that it was actually you were being selfish all along? Or was it true reflection? And why do you think parenting is being selfish ultimately? Why take on that view? (laughs) You know what? This might be one of those things that if I said that in the past... uh... I disagree with it now. (laughs) So first, I was never planning on being a dad. No, that wasn't one of the things that I set out to do. It was a nice surprise. Um, But I don't think I would say parenting is selfish, quite the opposite. Maybe what I meant is that it's also good for me. The things that I've learned about being a good dad, about just being completely present for him, like completely shutting off my devices and tucking away the phone whenever I'm playing with him. So it's like, there is no phone. It's just me and him Uh, giving him my full attention, entering his world, turning him on to new things, showing him places and um, cultural inputs that all of these things I'm doing for him also really benefit me. So that's what I meant. If, if I said it was selfish, I'm sorry, I take it back. But, but yes, the things I do for him also benefit me. What is the three biggest illusion that's preventing people to be happy? Uh, what is happiness to you? Can you describe that feeling? Um, I think happiness to me is the default, my default state when I'm not letting myself get sucked into worrying about problems. Just happiness, I think, for all of us is the default. So uh, the three biggest illusions, uh, let's say, biggest illusion number one, you can't help the way you feel. That's not true. You can. Um, Illusion number two, that you should react to what's going on right now. Uh, You don't have to react. And uh, illusion number three, if you add something to your life, it will make you happier. I think more people would be happier if they do more subtraction, subtract negative things from their life instead of trying to add more. What, are, what were the three things you unlearned in 2019? Three things I unlearned. Um, I thought that I knew what I wanted for my future. Uh, and I had to unlearn that and realize that 
you can only find out what you want by trying. You can't just sit in your bedroom and think in theory, this is what I want. Um, you have to try it to find out. Uh, for me personally, I'll, uh, number two, I thought that I wanted to make music. So I got my instruments here and I thought I wanted to make music again because for 15 years of my life, I was a full-time musician and I, I had to unlearn that thing that felt like a true fact because although my words said I wanted to do music every day, my actions clearly disagreed with that. I just wasn't doing it. So I uh, officially gave up and gave away my instruments. And that was uh, very liberating. I felt very unconflicted. Um, number three, I thought that having my books translated into many languages would be fun, but it was not. The big question, how do you, how does one be happy? What are the advice you give people? Um, hmm. Let go of goals. That's my only advice. Okay. <laughs> Since arriving at the UK, what surprised you? Absolutely nothing. It is just completely comfortable and completely unsurprising in every way. Maybe that's what's surprising about it, is how unsurprising it is. England's just comfortable. I don't have much to say about it, sorry. What email delivery software do you use? Your email seems to be landing in my inbox every single time. Really, that's amazing. Um, I just wrote my own. It's a little Ruby script that I wrote and put on my own server and um, yeah, I just send emails out for my own server. Uh, for some things, I use Amazon SES, which is a little kind of nerdy backend system they have for just using SIMPTY to, to deliver emails. But yeah, everything really happens on my server. Um, I don't ever want to... There's some things with programming that if you know just a tiny bit of programming, you can save thousands of dollars and not pay money to companies like MailChimp or Dropbox that are really doing nothing you can't do for yourself with just five minutes of learning. What um, context software do you use and how do you implement um, your context system? Um, I wrote my own because it's deeply integrated with everything else I do. It's the PostgreSQL database is really the core of uh, everything I do in my programming. But the only reason I wrote my own is because I have a whole system where it's like one central database that runs everything. So if you leave a comment on my site, it goes into my central database. If you buy my ebook on a, through something else, if I have a different domain, like I have a, a website called Music Thoughts with a collection of thoughts about music. And if, and if you submit a thought to Music Thought, well, then it all still comes into my central database. The big idea was um, that I just wanted to have one record of a person. So, you know, here's uh, Sarah in Sweden, and I want her to exist just one place in my database. So if Sarah moves to Norway, then it just gets changed in one place. And, you know, if her email address changes, it's changed in one place. So I wrote my own because I wanted to integrate it with everything else I'm doing. But um, on my site, I have recommendations. I'm constantly on the lookout for good contact management software. So 
I believe the URL is uh, if you go to sivers.org slash DBT, as in database tips, I think that's the URL where I wrote my article about my recommendations for uh, for you. How do you make night mode on your website? Oh, that's just one line of CSS. Somebody turned me on to that a month ago. Um, uh, it's at media prefers color scheme dark. You put the curly braces and whatever you put inside that means that the user then gets to decide. So on some phones and tablets now, you can just say, you can, the user decides, I want things to go dark when my room is dark or always. And so that way you let the user decide whether your site is light or dark. So the default is still the white background with black text I've always had. But if somebody on their device flips it into dark mode, my site turns black with white text. But yeah, that's a single line of CSS. That's very easy. What is, the, what is your top three most useful ideas, products, or software that's in your life currently? Um, currently, April 2020, the most useful idea is to expect the worst and make your peace with it. Uh, right now, the most useful product for me is my weight rack in my garage. I I've lived in a little apartment for many years and I'm so thankful to have a garage with a weight rack in it right now so I can exercise during lockdown. And software is always for me the PostgreSQL database, but that's my nerdy programming thing. That's not like something you can install for five bucks. It's, it's something you learn. What is the idea behind how to live book that you're writing right now how are you writing it day to day and why do you decide to put them into a book not a bunch of articles okay it's because there is a brilliant book called sum s-u-m by david eagleman and uh, that answers the question what happens when you die and he answers it 40 different ways in 40 different chapters and each chapter deliberately conflicts with the previous chapters. Um, it's answering the question 40 different ways with 40 different opinions. So I thought it would be a blast to write a book called How to Live in that exact same format. So I've got 27 different conflicting chapters um, answering that question of how you should live. So each chapter is completely convinced that it has the right answer on how you should live and each chapter completely disagrees with all of the others. Uh, then I was surprised and thrilled actually to find one grand conclusion, but you'll have to find that secret when the book is ready. How do you get a .org domain? <laughs> you just register it wherever you, wherever domains can be registered. Any place that does a .com to, can do a .org. Um, I also own Sivers.com and Sivers.net, and I have forever. But .org has a historical use for nonprofit organizations. So I chose .org for my personal site because I wanted to make it clear that this isn't a business. I don't do any, I don't track analytics. There is no advertising. I make no money off of this. This is just my personal site. So that's why I did .org. But yeah, anybody can get a .org wherever domains are sold. All right. Now that we come to the end of the long list of questions, 
End of lightning like, round. End right, of lightning. What else do you want to talk about? I feel that like there's a lot, and because you are going at such a high speed, I might have missed a couple, and I'm gonna hit myself after when I edit this interview. But um, I highlighted a few that I want to discuss more of. Okay, so I think the first one would be models by Mark Manson. Um, if you, how would you elaborate that book? Because wait, sorry to interrupt. It's it's been a few years since I read it. I'm sorry, actually, I don't remember it that well. I just know that while reading it, I loved that. I loved that it got philosophical at the same time. That it, it took a really holistic approach, like. If you look, there are lots of books out there that are like how to pick up women. You know, if you do this little trick, she'll be yours. And those are just disgusting. So the funny thing about the book Models by Mark Manson is that at first glance, it looks like it might be that kind of book, especially because the title. You're like, okay, what is this going to be like? How to get a model into bed? Oh, come on. But then you read it and you go, "Uh, no, it's actually completely the opposite. He's actually very critical of the whole pickup artist thing. Um, and I think it's just, it's a very considerate and holistic look at um, dating written to men, but in a very wise and uncondescending, in, in a very, let's just say, a very deep and not shallow way. Yeah, yeah. And also he, get, he did give offer activities of things to do right out the bat from the book and, you know, create sort of like a timeline, how to get better, which I really love as well. Oh, okay. Oh, you yeah. remember it better than I do. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, because I am actually in the midst of dating. Last year, I went to 35 dates. So I am like trying to learn as much as I can about this whole thing. And actually in the midst of it, thinking if I am exploring if I should... Uh, write a sequel, which the working title is From Lovers, uh, from Loser to Lover. And then the sequel would be From Lover to Life Partner. Ah, oh, nice. Cool. Yeah, I like that. Um, yeah, Singapore is a, uh, a, a, it's a very interesting place to, to date. It's very dead. What's amazing, well, no, no, I mean, I, I barely, barely, okay, here's all I knew is when I lived in Singapore, I was not single. Um, and then I became single when I was living in Wellington. And in Wellington, nobody does online dating. I mean, some people, but it's just not really part of the culture. So if you try to do online dating in Wellington, mm, you know, it's uh, slim pickings. <laughs> it's a little depressing. And then, but I was passing through Singapore for two days and I thought, huh, I wonder what happens if I turn on Tinder in Singapore. And so I turned it on, did like five minutes of swiping, then went to bed and fell asleep. In the morning, I woke up and it was like, you have 99 matches. It's like, what? <laughs> so, but then I was like, I had to leave the next day. I was like, oh, man, man, this, this could have been fun. Um, so that's, that's all I knew is it just seems like online dating is completely integrated into the culture of Singapore. It fits with the culture, whereas in a place like Wellington, New Zealand, it does not. 
wanted to make I'm I'm surprised that you got 99 days in 5 minutes of swiping and like <laughs> because I wonder if it's a white man syndrome right and so, yeah I, wait you know what I found out later that's I, I I forgot there's a, I didn't know until like 2 months later um see there was just one woman on there that we we talked for a bit even when I returned to New Zealand and um and she said like 2 months later like it's a something like I'm so lucky that Tinder featured you that day. And I went, huh? She goes, oh, you don't know? I said, no, what? She goes, oh, the only reason I found you is like, she said, you were like that one of those people, like when you turn on Tinder, I think it told everybody in Singapore that or every woman between the age of uh, 30 and 50 that night in Singapore that, uh, you know, here's our top picks for you for the day. So I just got lucky passing through Singapore. Somebody in editorial made me the the highlighted recommended pick, which is now I see, oh, that's why 99 matches in one night while I was sleeping. So, yeah. You, and you didn't, and you didn't pair, I mean, like you didn't pay for premium or no nothing. It, it might, it's just a fluke. No, I okay. No, I did at the time. Sorry, and again, this is like two years ago. Uh, but at the time when I was on Tinder, I did do the premium because um, I don't like swiping. So I only want to see. It, it basically, I just figure if you pay them the nine bucks or whatever it is, you don't have to swipe because then you just see who's interested in you, and then why bother looking at whoever's not? That's right. Yeah, it would be a kind of cool experiment to to pay it and see what's the difference, um, and see a pros pros and cons thing, and whether if it's just worth <laughs> it for that month or whatever. Um, right. Okay. So, but you know what? All that said, hold on. It's funny. I never talk about like dating stuff, but I, um, I have met a couple really interesting people through Tinder. Um. Sometimes I even forget, like last night I was talking with somebody I think of as like one of my three best friends in the world. And she's a New Zealander that's that's um, living in the Ukraine now, working for the government. And we've been just friends for a couple years. And sometimes I forget. It's like, oh, wow, that's right. I met her on Tinder, like, you know, like in Wellington. She was like she was returning to Wellington where she's from. And it's like I had Tinder on in Wellington. We kind of went on like. A date but then just kind of just became friends and I realized like actually that's happened a few times like somebody I met through an online dating random connection ended up being a really good friend so yeah whereas in sometimes I think like I'm not into it it's a bad idea I'm not going to do it and then other times I go well yeah I don't know about romantically but <laughs> friendship wise I've met some really cool people through it so yeah yeah, and and do you think the reason why you're not into it is because of the societal construct of like Tinder is a bad thing, or like maybe like like a whole bunch of there's a slimy salespeople like how making sales a bad thing, but the great salespeople is the top one percent, like just make you feel that like you are being helped. Probably yeah, um, but also okay, like I never <laughs> again it's been a while, but I can't. Uh, the whole swipe left, right thing. I just kind of made some rules of them. Oh. Well, for one, I just, like I said, it's better to like pay the nine bucks and just not do right. any swiping. That's right. Um, I value my time. <laughs> um, but then when I was swiping, I would not swipe right on anyone that didn't have interesting profile text. 
because huh. I thought, I don't want to, I'm not looking for the kind of woman that just thinks that her looks alone should be her value. That's right. So if somebody has only uploaded photos and hasn't taken the time to write any text, then no matter how great the photos, I'm not interested. I'm only interested in somebody that would feel that what yeah. they have to add is... What a great rule, text. actually. Yeah, because I also think that the texting goes to show how much they're interested in meeting somebody other than just... So they're invested in making a good profile to make the, to know what kind of things they want. So in fact, if you could just turn off the picture feature on... Yeah, Minder. That was that was my name for this idea, Minder. <laughs> Instead of Tinder, mind. It's not a real thing though. I just made up that name. Uh, imagine it's Tinder without photos. That you can. Okay, so the whole thing in Tinder right, is that that you can only start communicating once you've both matched your photos, right? Um, once you've both swiped right on the photos, then you can start communicating. So now imagine the opposite. I call it Minder, where you only get to see the person's words. And only after you've both like basically swiped right on each other's words and ideas, then you get to see what the person looks like. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. Someone out there, please. I'll pay $9. <laughs> yeah. It won't be very popular, but for those nerds here, you know, yeah, a few and, people might like that. And what do you, how do you, uh, I'm going to dig in a little bit more since <laughs> you're interested in it. Um, the profile how do you, uh, what do you think makes a good profile and, you know, uh, pictures wise and, you know, how, what do you put in that, you know, limited amount of words in the description that you have? Um, oh, it's okay. Granted, this is just for me, right? Like somebody else might completely disagree with everything I'm saying, but you're asking me, so you'll get my answer. Um, that, that I want to see, uh, somebody quirky and unique with something to say. So, so like I said, for one, I would just never swipe right on any woman that didn't have a, like a text bio. Like if she felt that there was no need to write anything, well, then I feel no need to talk to her. Um, uh, but then if somebody writes something and all it says is like, well, I'm an ordinary person. I, I work hard. I play hard. I like laughing. I like music. I like to have fun. Uh, I like food. And I think, okay, no, I, that, <laughs> um, but on the other hand, if somebody were to say a bunch of like weird, quirky things, um, then yeah, absolutely. That would get my attention. And so therefore vice versa, whatever it is you think that you would like to see in someone else, you have to be that yourself. So you have to do the same. So basically, you'll kind of be, what are you weird about in life? Put that on your Tinder profile text. Hey, we're in the Misfits podcast. Yes, what are you weird about in life? That's what you should be emphasizing when you're dating. Emphasize what's weird. Don't say, I like food. I like to laugh. I like to have a good time. It's just, it goes without saying. It's like saying, I breathe. I, I wake. I sleep. I eat. And we don't, you know, you've only got so many characters. Like, don't distinguish yourself with generics tell say what's weird about you although when somebody does that i assume that what they're saying is that when they say especially those things like well i like to go out and i like to stay in i like to party and i like to be cozy watching netflix 
I guess what I read between the lines is that they're saying, I can't afford to exclude anybody. <laughs> but I think if you do be exclusionary and you say, here's what's weird about me and here's what I don't like, then that helps. Mm-hmm. And okay, so let's say you match. What is your to-go opening line uh, when you match with anybody? I don't know. I don't do that. I don't have. No, no, I don't do that. I, I, there is no set open. Sorry, sorry. You're you're asking really like a non-expert here. I haven't done this in a couple of years, and and even then, I'm like not an expert. But no, there's no set opening line. You you say something unique about that person to that person, just as you would in regular life. I don't like. It's kind of a harmful idea to kind of commoditize people into saying, "What do you say to everyone you speak to?" Like, no, no, no. That's fair. Well, I think the general team is sort of um, um, notice something, um, ask a thoughtful question, or compliment thoughtfully. Uh, would be the general broad strokes here. Would you say so? Probably, oh. though. Though again, maybe being. I don't know. Okay, let, let me just reverse it. Let me imagine that if I had matched with somebody on Tinder, what would I want her to say? Oh, well, last, I don't know. I don't remember. It's been a long time. But, um, well, no, but it's whatever. Okay, I'll just do a, a hypothetical one instead. Is that I would want her to to, to not be normal. I wouldn't want to, you know, hi, how are you? So where are you from? How's your weekend? <laughs> you know, like that kind of stuff makes it's it's again, it's kind of like the version of somebody saying, Well, I like to have fun, I like to eat. It's like, oh no, are are you just a normal person? Like don't but again, that's just me. I don't wanna be I don't wanna I don't wanna be with a normal person. Um and somebody looking for a normal person would not want to be with me. I would be very disappointing. For someone who wanted to be with a normal person, uh, I think of sometimes I think of like somebody who wants to be with a normal person. It's like it's like two people that want to do the Macarena or something. It's like, well, let's just do this preset dance that somebody else has come up with and let's just go through the motions. I'm normal. You're normal. Let's just do the normal thing. Um, no, that's not me. So. Um, OK. Here's here's a specific question. Okay, I'm I'm remembering a conversation I had with a friend of a friend in Wellington that was asking my advice on online dating, and and so she was a woman, and she said, I always just I always say to guys on Monday, how was your weekend? And I thought she was kidding at first, and I, and I said, No, are you serious? No, that's the worst thing to say. I said, I will unmatch with somebody who says, How was your weekend? <laughs> um, uh, no. And she said, well, then what What would you say instead? I'd say, I don't know, how about a, a tiger is running at you and you've got a picture of the queen and a stick of butter. What do you do? Like, come on. Like, just if you want to have an interesting conversation, you have to start an interesting conversation. Like, say, you know, how many oceans are there in the world? Can you name them? Uh what was the worst thing you've ever eaten? Whatever, like just something that's not ordinary. Don't do, how was your weekend? How are you today? Nice weather, eh? You know, it's like, no, no, that's just kind of, 
you're just asking for a boring conversation. Like, no, flaunt your, push your own creativity and come up with something radically interesting to ask or to say, especially to ask. Okay. And, and um, do you have any thoughts or ideas on, you know, how to, when is it to transit out um, for a coffee? Do, is there like a tempo or like, <laughs> oh, that's too much conversation. For me, for me, it's, there's too much conversation threats now. Hey, what do you think? Uh-huh. How about let's do coffee and conversation? Yeah. <laughs> Brian, this is hilarious. I never thought that, you know, again, you and I have been emailing since 2016. I never thought that this conversation would turn into a lightning round followed by let's talk about dating. Um, so, yeah, I do it as soon as possible. Um, first, within, once we've traded like four or 10 texts, I just right away say, let's talk on the phone. Like, this is this is silly. What is this? Like, let's get voices connecting here. So I say, um, do you want to talk on the phone? And if she says no, then I'm done. Because I travel the world. Well, I travel the world a lot. And all of my friends are phone friends. Like, right now, my six best friends in the world are in uh, Singapore, Australia, uh, Los Angeles, New York City, Ukraine, and Germany. Those are like just off the top of my head. Those are like my six most regular friends. So the phone is essential for me. Um, So if somebody makes it clear right away that she's not the kind of like, if somebody says, oh, I don't don't like talking on the phone. I say, okay, well, we're done. (laughs) Nice knowing you. Do you like by by, like word for word, okay, we're done? (laughs) No, no, I'm not mean. But if somebody says, oh, I just don't like talking on the phone, I say, oh. And then it's just, you know, probably just going to unmatch within a few days because that's it's just out of the question. Um, I'll just I'll just kind of I'll end the conversation there and then gently, you know, say I wish you the best. Uh, um, no, but I mean, I'll, I don't mind ending things like I don't want to waste somebody's time. So, yeah, I will be the one to say. Like, hey, sorry, I don't think this is a good match. I wish you the best um, and say that soon. But yeah, so I, I aim to get on a phone call within under 10 texts. And um, yeah, I don't know why. Why do this? Um, and then if we enjoy the phone call, I say, let's let's meet up when you're free. And and that's it. Like, because over and over and over again, at least this is my again, I was doing this in Wellington, New Zealand two years ago. Um, many times I would, I'd say like probably 15 different times I met up with somebody. And as soon as we met in person, it's like, no, no, I'm not attracted at all, at all. She had one, one good, she must've had a really good photo, but like in person, I'm totally not into this. I'm not digging the vibe. I'm not physically attracted. So I'm so glad that we spent no more than two minutes texting and five minutes talking. Because if that would have been like an hour of texting and then you meet in person, you go, oh, oops, I'm not attracted. Well, you know, I value my time at $5,000 an hour. (laughs) So I'm not going to spend an hour of my time texting. Uh, No, I want to like get in person as soon as possible. No idea how much 
like of what you're saying, although you're not telling me what to do, is changing the way I'm going to do dating. <laughs> you have no idea. You know, you know, sometimes it's just about someone like, like I just do it like that. Like what is better? It's just like, huh? Yeah. Why do I have a thought of that? I know, but there, there are norms and I understand that there are, are norms, but to me, then it goes with that same thing that I was saying that, I'm not trying to be normal, so I don't care what the norms are. In fact, if I go against the norms, it's a pro. Like, see, that would be an example of a quirk. One of the, um, oh God, like one of the great loves of my life was actually somebody in New Zealand that found me. Uh, like I had just turned on online dating. She's somebody that she approached me. Um, and right away, like she basically sent like one text said, yeah, she sent one text saying like, you sound really cool. We should talk. And I replied saying, yeah, you too. And she said, here's my number. Call me landline only, please. Like she said, I just think landlines sound better. And I was like, hell yeah. So do I. I was like, just right there. It's like, okay, see now I know within three sentences that you're my kind of girl. And that was right. Like it turned into a great, great, you know, yeah, one of the great loves of my life. And yeah, yeah, yeah. it's just somebody that's saying, let's, you know, hi, you sound interesting. Call me. Here's my number. Mm. Like, yep. That's the way that's, I like it. Got it. So, um, move, switching gear a little bit, um, to coupling and, and <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm digging into this topic. Yeah. Just like <laughs> yeah, going switching off. gears a bit to vegetable gardening. No. Okay. To coupling. Right. Right, go ahead. To coupling. <laughs> and I'm not using marriage to be here. Um, so uh, you mentioned that uh, the mo- the couple of few relationships you had before, the reason why you guys need the papers was because, you know, of the traveling, right, and moving places. And if not that, how do you think about coupling? Oh, man. Um, I don't know. I, I think... Huh, um, that's okay. Yeah, I don't have a good answer to that. Um, right. It's funny. Yeah, both times I got married, um, the first one was just... You know, we'd been together a couple of years, but she lived in Sweden and I lived in America and she kept coming to visit me. And um, then after her third long visit, immigration said they would no longer let her enter America ever again unless she's married or has a work visa. And so we went, I actually tried to get her a work visa because we didn't want to get married. And um, then finally, we're just like, all right, went down to the county hall, scribbled our names on a piece of paper, told nobody about it. But now she was allowed to come in the country. So that was my first marriage. Um, We never, it was like we never meant, um, we never thought that we were going to be together forever. Um, But it was a great relationship. Um, And then, yeah, second marriage was a a version of something similar. Um, But I don't know. There's so many different ways to think about it that I can't even say one is right or wrong. I'd rather say nothing and influence somebody not at all. Uh, (laughs) Uh, it's tricky. There's just so many. It's just it's so personally unique and has to be mutual and all that kind of stuff. So um, yeah. Why? Well, how about just? I mean, just laying out a couple of ways to think about it. Um, I mean, of course, there's the legal side, you know, to like coming in and out of, of places. And then there's also like you know, if you want a kid, then you know, then there's also financial sides, mm-hmm. tax reasons, and all that. And then there's also the whole idea of 
you know how like you have good friends and you know good friends you don't need to tell them a lot of things they they, they pick up where you left off and you can have great conversations by that um so that's the value of a uh, compounding relationship then there's of course there's also like um a bottom um, um, just having a companion because it just increased your happiness in life. I don't know. Maybe you both have things you like to do together and it's nice to do it together. You can play chess alone, although maybe you can, but it'd be nice to play with someone. So here's like the couple of things that I'm thinking about. Is there anything you perspective-wise you want to add on to that, those layers? Yes. Um just remember that every combination of two people is a unique combination. So long ago, uh, my first long relationship was an open relationship. Uh, she actively wanted us to be with other people while we were together. And so we were, and it lasted six and a half years. It was a great relationship. Um, and I haven't had an open relationship since then because it worked for our unique combination, our unique situation. So I would say, try to drop preset notions of what you think you want, because every combination is unique. You might say to yourself, oh, I could never do an open relationship but then you might meet the right person who wants to, and you'll feel secure enough and you'll say, actually, okay. Or you might say, you know, what I really want is to live with the person I'm with, but then you might meet somebody amazing who uh, lives upstairs from you and you really like having your two separate living areas. And you say, actually, never mind. I think I like living apart now. So just remind yourself to not have preset notions because every two people make a unique combination and because of the infinite amount of options we are all i am facing uh, a paradox of choice and if you want to be weird you need to state it up front in your profile right um how would you i don't know i mean i guess maybe it's not how would you i guess what do you think one should do in terms of sequencing of experiments um what are the first few big experiments in terms of relationship that one should try first and then later i don't know what you mean what do you mean experiments right okay so let's on the assumption is that you don't know what you want right so um, um, throw away everything you think you you think your preference is until you try it. So, um, um, well, of course, it's a gender thing. Hopefully, you know if you are you know asexual or heterosexual. Um, there is um, the different forms of relationship. You just talk about open relationship, and then there's monogamy, right? And um, um, and also, I guess the different. Um, there's different attraction, physical attraction to, you know, uh, the different value system, I guess. Um, so I guess if you are going on an experiment to learn about what do you like in a relationship, what would you think are the first few big blocks of experiments one would try out first to know, you know what I'm saying? Oh, you mean yeah. like that? Okay. Yeah. Um... I think it's just conversation. It's okay. just, I mean, you discover these things just through 
talking with somebody. It's not even like, hey, let's do an experiment. Uh, unless you, you know, unless you're comfortable enough to to say like, hey, um, do you want to try this? Do you want to try that? Um, but that's what you do like after you're with somebody and you've you've chosen somebody that you want to be with. I mean, it all starts with the person. Like to me, like all of this kind of like vast quantity of dating, as soon as you find somebody that you think is really cool that you just like being with, well, then you instantly stop dating and you just cut off the other options. Uh, and you say, no, it's, it's as long as it's mutual. <laughs> right, um, right, right. Then yeah, you stop dating and you say, no, I'm just into you now. And this is it. And let's explore this. And then you get to know each other better and better. And then you get and if they say they want secure. like an open relationship and then well let's try it out if you're not opposed to that um yeah okay okay let's got this, it let's try that yeah got it okay um but singapore yeah, the quantity thing oh, is yes. dangerous yeah you know, it's um, yeah it is so sorry a lot most of i became single for the first time in my life when i was 36 I was like serial monogamist from teenager until 36. So 36, it was the, the woman from Sweden uh, who we did the marriage to let her stay in the country. Um, so when we broke up, we had this great amicable breakup after six and a half years together, we just kind of both looked at each other and said, yeah, I'm feeling done, are you? Yeah, all right, take care. Never saw her again, it was great. Um, and um, so that was my first time being single and it was the first time ever doing online dating and I was like I just binged <laughs> like man I was I was going out with like two women a day I would like set up like I would set up a five o'clock date with somebody and an eight o'clock date with somebody else like five days a week I was meeting like 10 women or meeting up with 10 women a week and um it was intense and met some amazing people um met some amazing women that ended up being great friends for years it's still yeah some of my best friends to this day are women that i met because we went on like one date back when i was 36 and we kind of went eh, i think we're just friends and yeah that happened a lot but we all acknowledged that that quantity thing is messed up like you know not just tinder but any online dating makes you think it puts you into this mindset of like, there's always somebody better on the next swipe. It's like, it's kind of mixed up with like a gambling mindset and all that stuff about gambling and how people become gambling addicts. I think people can become online dating addicts thinking like, well, yeah, you know, I'm with this guy now, but I'm just going to keep looking. It's like, no, that's a dangerous mindset. Like at some point you got to just say like, no, you know what? You're really cool. I'm going to stop. I'm going to delete the app now. Interesting. I guess being just knowing that, um, would you say so? It's more like a feeling that you're feeling like an addiction, you know, maybe it's like to coffee or to cigarettes. And then when you feel that in your one of your journals, and then you're like, okay, well, it's about time. Let's um, cut down quantity and really think about what is the couple of things that make you truly happy. And once you have hit that criteria, good enough is good enough. Hmm. Yeah, I think it would, I don't know, to me, I would never come to that. To me, it's more of like a a feeling with a person that if that if I met somebody through whatever means necessary and I really just like being with her, 
and she really likes being with me, well, then I'd just rather explore that um, instead of continuing to look for more um, other people to meet. I'd say, no, let's just explore this. This is good. Let's explore this. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't say that doesn't require journaling or anything like that. It just requires a, a mutual kind of, you know, enjoying being with somebody. Okay, done with dating. <laughs> Enough dating for advice for the day. Right. Um, Singapore. Um, so, what do you? What do you? What, what did you say when you say what surprised you about Singapore? Actually, that people don't chase their their passion. Is that what it is? Yeah, I was surprised how many times I heard a version of that story. Like, oh well, I really wanted to, to do music, or I really wanted to do poetry, but my my parents told me I had to get a six-figure job at an MNC, and so here I am. And, yeah, at first, I was like, no, that's so wrong. But then, yeah, as time went by, I understood the mentality more that um, desires are fleeting. And also, you know, I can understand a lot of parents, uh, especially grandparents, that, like, came up in the 60s where things were very shaky and very insecure. Like, kind of like we said earlier about values, like, that... Um, somebody who grew up in Singapore in the 60s really feels a strong need to really secure your future, to feel more security. Whereas I could imagine somebody who's like a teenager now in the richest GDP per person country in Asia might feel more of a secure safety net. Like It's, it's actually, I wonder how many of these things are, are planted versus not, but I feel like in Straits Times or whatever, I would see a lot of kind of human interest stories about the the lawyer that quit her job to start a, a muffin bakery company and those kinds of stuff. And I feel like um, those stories are coming out more now. And I think that's like a, a change of the times in Singapore. Please correct like, like I feel like I'm such an amateur about Singapore, but it's just the feeling I get. I'm so interested in the next generation of Singaporeans growing up in families that are already financially secure and especially the ones that are therefore encouraging their kids to to follow their dreams instead of getting the, the soul-crushing six-figure MNC job. Uh, I'm really interested to see what that does with the Singapore culture. A lot of um, threads we can pull on over here. One which reminded me of one of the articles you wrote, which is the art of selfishness, right? And then the other one, which is first principle thinking, right? Um, like if you have a million dollar in the bank account and, you know, why are you still not, you know, chasing your passion? And then you're not really not thinking for yourself. You're not living for yourself. Um, um, you're living for some other people. Um, yeah. Would you still say that you would, uh, I mean, when you heard that thing about Singapore, I mean, you sort of have a visceral sort of... <laughs> let me talk you out of this thing. <laughs> right. And now, do you still feel that? And Are you still weird, quote-unquote, weird about that, that you want to talk people out? Or you just sort of accept the fact that, hey, you know, like, it is what it is. And if you want to talk about yeah. it, I can. But if you don't, then we don't need to. Yeah, now I'm just, I'm, I feel very non-judgmental about it. Like, I actually can understand both ways of looking at it. Um... Like I have an eight-year-old kid now, and if if he was a teenager and said, um, "I think I want to be a truck driver or something like that," I wouldn't say, "Right on, follow your dreams." I, I'd probably say, uh, 
no, you're you've got something wrong in your head right now. Um, do this instead. You know, maybe not all of me would say that, but part of me would say that. So I understand the parents who told their kids like, no, 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 poetry. No, get it. You need to get a good job at an MNC. I get it. So I don't think it's wrong anymore. I, I understand it's just an equally valid way of looking at it. It's valuing different things. And then, see, this was to me an all a big process of realizing that the specific place where I grew up, you know, being born in California, is kind of like in the, the worldwide spectrum of collectivism versus individuality. Now I understand I grew up at the extreme far end of individuality in the world. So um, I, now I see that that's not like the right way to be. That's kind of like one of the most extreme ways in the world to be. So there are places um, like Scandinavia where it's kind of more balanced. It's kind of, you know, um, yeah, it's kind of a, a mix. And so I, I, now I think I've, I've understood the spectrum a little better of uh, following your individual preferences versus what's best for the group. Fair, fair. And... Um... The Singapore government system is designed like a Ferrari. Uh, how, why, and why do you say that? Like, what are the different things you look at to make you say that it feels like a Ferrari? Okay, this is where, like, I, this is kind of outside of my interest um, so much. Um, sorry, hold on, I'm trying to tighten my mic stand, it keeps falling. Um, it's outside of my interest, meaning I'm not so into government. You know, some people are even kind of like armchair government watchers. They read all the news every day and they get involved in decisions. Like, I'm just not one of those guys. I kind of feel like, all right, everybody else is watching current events in politics. I, I think I'll read a book about linguistics, you know. Um, so I don't know that much, but just from conversations with friends um, that are into it, like I said, like a, um, I know a New Zealander that's consulted with the Singapore government and a, a guy from Finland that's consulted with the Singapore government. And what they all tell me is like, these are people that have consulted with governments everywhere in the world. And when they get to Singapore, they're just like superlatives. They're like, my God, these are just the the brightest people I've ever met working anywhere in government in the whole world and and he's and i said i think it's because of this program they do where they sorry i forget what they what you call it the um the kind of early channeling where they kind of spot bright talents early and then they uh, they pay for them to go off to an ivy league school in uk or america but then uh subsidize it by insisting on public service for a few years after that and he said so yeah in some hands in some ways you could look at that and by some people's morals or outlook on the world you could say that that's a weird or a wrong way to do things but it works and it works really well and it means that singapore is pretty unique in the fact that the best and brightest people in the country are working for the government that's pretty amazing like almost nowhere else on earth is that true um so i see by by that it then influences the system to be a lot better because you have the smartest people working on it. So, right. Um, oh, and man, and I love. Okay, oh. this is. <laughs> I love <laughs> this thing that I'm about to say next. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm getting excited for the thing I'm about to say. <laughs> is Singapore is also the only place 
I know of. And again, please don't, you know, uh, anybody listening, don't attack me for this. I'm not into politics, but I really like the fact that because the PAP has been there since 65, that they can make a 40 year plan and it happens where it's like everywhere else in the world, even places like New Zealand, which have a wonderful government. New Zealand really has the other like best government I've seen, but still it's like every four years or so, whatever it is that they have these elections. So everything has to be somewhat short term. You have to make things happen in your election cycle. And then, you know, people, the, the politicians are incentivized to do things that get them reelected, even if it's not necessarily the best thing for the people. And so when I hear, when I moved to Singapore, some people gave me, uh, you know, some people criticized me for moving to Singapore saying, oh, it's a, um, they say it's a democracy, but it's not. It's a, uh, it's a, sorry, what do you call, what's the opposite of a democracy? Um, Authoritarian. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah. I just forgot the word. Um, <laughs> and people say, oh, no, it's, it's not a democracy. Um, it's a dictatorship. And. I say, but yeah, but it's it's a very for this situation, it's a very effective system. It, yeah, the PAP's done great stuff, and I was there when, you know, they got very close to getting elected out in what was that 2012. Um, the elections were very close, and at least from what I can tell as an outsider, and yes, you can all call me naive for this, but it seemed like the PAP kind of started listening harder and listening more because realizing that they were close to getting voted out. It seemed that they kind of um, improved by that competition. Um, so I just, I love the long-term outlook that Singapore can have. They can make these long-term projects because the PAP can stay in, you know, stay the ruling party and the, the people running it can stay running it for decades instead of getting ousted every four years. Yeah. No, I, I, I am on the cam of PAP did a good job and I feel that uh, uh, it could have the term of a benevolent dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. And it's, it's good that it's, it is a democracy and I hope that someday if the PAP is doing a bad job, I hope that they would get voted out. But instead it would be better, it'd be preferable if the PAP just kept doing a great job and did what's best for the people and... Uh, it's just well run, and yeah, um, I don't know. I'm a fan from my again, oh, me too. from my naive outsider's amateur point can, of view. Can I? I'm a, and I'm a fan of this. Program. I want to buy um, the book Wood Ache in Singapore. Uh, I couldn't find it on Amazon anymore. Uh, could I right. still buy it? <laughs> I, I, in fact, thanks for reminding me. I, um, I removed it because it was all written in 2014 and not updated since, and. So much information was outdated, outdated that I've just decided to make them all open source now. So pretty soon, I'm going to take the Wood Egg website and just make it like a here, you know, enter your email address, log in, you get free access to not not just the compiled ebook, but I'll open it up and show you all the research along the way. It's all sitting in a database. I just have to build the little web app to give people access. People who work on it uh, with you, um, if you could link out to them. Um, yep. I mean, I just find like amazing people. I was like just talking to Oswan um, and I was like, whoa, this Aww. is like the, it's like doing glitz right now. It's like, oh, this is a good job, you know? Yeah, cool. Um, 
I want to be respectful of your time. Uh, um, how how are you feeling? I mean, I just have a, a couple of more, like three more questions to go here. But cool. okay, yeah. that I'm okay. Okay, okay. So the three uh, person that you uh, mentioned that uh, memorable, uh, memorable, interesting. <laughs> I wonder if you can ask about that. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I want to know because I I have never met any of the three person that you talk about, and they're just right oh. down the door, right? So I'd uh, love to know more about that. I don't, do, I don't even know that. I'm not saying that I haven't met them, so I don't know them at right. all. Okay, so Meng Wang Wong uh, is probably my, if I had to play favorites, he's my favorite Singaporean. <laughs> he, uh, we met when I first moved there. He was running Hackerspace, hackerspace.sg, which used to be uh, on Busora Street and now is a little further away. Um, so when I first arrived and I was just like, okay, I'm here in Singapore. Who should I meet? Um, a few people said you should meet him, but it's funny. There's a cute story about Meng Wang Wong, uh, that at the afternoon before I met him, uh, I was over at uh, E27. I was uh, meeting somebody and I told him I was going to meet with Meng and he goes, Oh, you're meeting Meng. He goes, Meng's a weird guy, man. Uh, he, he wears, he always wears a three piece suit. And as soon as I heard that, I had an idea who this guy might be because a three-piece suit isn't somebody that a normal MNC banker wears. A three-piece suit is like, you gotta be a little bit of an eccentric to wear a three-piece suit in Singapore. So I had a little bit of an idea. So when we met up on Basora Street and uh, he was in his three-piece suit and he took me upstairs to some uh, Middle Eastern restaurant behind an unmarked door. And I said, so why the suit? And he said uh, very thoughtfully, he said, because um, <laughs> he said, I'm, I'm an engineer at heart and uh, I'm into specifications. And, you know, I helped create the uh, the SPF specification for email headers. And he said, when you send out an email, each person doesn't design their own specification for how to send out an email. We have an agreed upon specification for how email works. And that's a solved problem. And he said, I believe that men's clothing is a solved problem, that the suit uh, was designed 100 years ago. And he said 100 years from now, you could go you could put somebody into a time machine and set them 100 years back or 100 years in the future. A, a suit will still look good in any era. Uh, therefore, men's clothing is a solved problem. He said men left to their own devices don't know how to dress themselves very well. So I just decided to adhere to the specification. It's like. I love this guy. So Meng went on to just, he just became one of my favorite uh, people. And in fact, I I still own a an apartment in Katong because I thought I was going to be still living in Singapore now. So I bought my home in Katong and then yeah, change of plans. I'm here in England. So Meng is living in my apartment <laughs> in Katong. Oh, that's wonderful. And um, so that's, that's Meng. So yeah, number Meng, two yeah. is Pete Kellogg. Um, Pete is a 65-year-old Scottish guy who moved to Singapore like 30 years ago and married a Singaporean woman and uh, is just one of the most interesting, thoughtful, uh, yeah, reflective, philosophical people I've ever met. Uh, Pete's just one of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, so, um, yeah, he lives right by uh, Thompson. What's the... Um, Ah, God, I'm forgetting. I've been there a year. What's the anecdotal uh, Pete story that make you fall in oh. love with him? No, that was just 
we actually I just met up with a, it was like you know you asked me about the mentoring I did with EDB and stuff like that. It was just I met up at um oh man what's the the name oh this is funny man I haven't been to Singapore in a year now and some of these names are fading. There was like an old sad little mall where I went to my favorite vegan restaurant on the top floor inside and it's right by um oh sorry never mind I'll, I'll um. Yeah, if anybody wants to know, email me later. It's one of those things I'm going to go look up online as soon as we hang up. But anyway, I met up with these two teenagers um, as they were pitching their idea at me and wanted to know my thoughts. And they said, well, do you want to see the co-working space where we work uh, across the street? And so I said, sure. And I went to the co-working space with them across the street. And um, and yeah, Pete was there. Uh, it was like the place was completely empty because it was like 1.30. Everybody else was out for lunch. But here was this uh, Scottish guy with white hair, and he just said a couple things to me, and I said a couple things to him just right away. I just said, I like you. We should keep in touch. He goes, yeah, you too. He said, here's my number. And it was just like, it was just one of those instant, it was almost like a uh, like a guy crush thing, you know, where you're, just like, where you're just instantly attracted to somebody, but like, as far as guys go, I was like, you're cool. He's like, you're cool too. Let's, let's keep in touch. Um, so that was Pete. I just talked to him a week or two ago on the phone. Um, and I said, Lucien Teo for number three. He's an amazing, uh, like true civil servant. He was for many years. And then he decided to go work for Google. Um, so last time I met up with him, um, two years ago now, I think, uh, he was working inside Google at, I think at YouTube for Kids, because uh, he has three wonderful kids and uh, who knows, maybe four by now. Uh, yeah, I've, I've lost touch with Lucy in a bit. But yeah, you asked, and those are the three names that came to the top of my head. But you know, I do not know any one of them, so I'm very excited to go connect with them. Also, you know, I'm going to give a shout out. I don't think I've ever given a shout out in my life. <laughs> but, you know, Singapore is very dear to my heart. I'm still a Singapore PR. I'm still, you know, like I've still got my citizenship application pending. I don't know why it's been pending for a year and a half, maybe because I haven't been there much, and, but I wish I lived there. Anyway, um, um, Wally, probably my my dearest, closest Singaporean friends are, are Wally and Ami, uh, Wally Tom, T-H-A-M, that runs um, his company. Oh, he's, he's changed his company name a couple times, but... Um, Wally and Ami are a married couple, uh, Singaporeans, that uh, they were really a big reason I moved to Singapore, is that I met them when I was passing through in 2010, and they were such amazing, sweet, warm people that it made me feel like, I think I want to live here. So Wally and Ami are a big reason that I moved to Singapore. There's my shout out. Okay. Oh, okay. Well, I thought that was like an anecdotal story when you get... No, I'm just going to leave it at that. It's, uh, okay. I wish I could... Um, yeah, well, they're both just for their own reasons. Just uh, Wally's just like a tireless extrovert helper that's just one of the most like giving, selfless people I've ever met. And Ami is a uh, quirky, mischievous introvert. And the two of them as a couple together are just hilarious. And I love being their friend. Oh, funny. All right. Um, so, okay. Five. Okay. So I have two more questions. One right. is the $5. How do you, what do you eat for $5 a day? I have a can of beans for breakfast, a uh, couple eggs for lunch, and 
um, usually just like a slab of chicken for dinner um, and maybe a scoop of protein powder. Um, that's it. I'm good. With regards to the feelings, um, uh, uh, you know, how do you, how do you use feelings in life? That you have given two contradictory points, and mm. and yeah, how should we think about them? Knowing those two points, right? Um, one is I journal, think- which you mentioned, right? You know, observe, not act on the feeling. So for sure. Is there anything else that you have gleaned through listening or following your feelings? No, I think um, with any of these things, uh, the reason that we can have conflicting beliefs and hold them in the same time and not need to unconflict them is because I think they're just different tools for different scenarios. You know, um, there's a bunch of advice out there floating in the world, people telling you that you should do this and somebody else will say, no, 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 the opposite, you should do that. Some other third person will say, no, 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 here's what you should do. And you can listen to all of them and you don't need to discount any of them but you just need to understand that that those are just different tools for different scenarios. And you need to just have your own personal sense of when it's best to follow your gut feeling on something versus when it's probably best to ignore your gut feeling and do the rational thing. And when that's best for you, you're the only person that knows. And it might even just be situational, like you might have been following your gut for a whole year and had a bad time at it. So you just personally decide to try the opposite. You decide to ignore your gut just for a change of pace, you know, and neither one of those is the right or wrong answer. It's just for you for this time. Perfect. Well, let's just end on that. <laughs> Thanks, Brian. It's been so nice to finally talk with you after yeah, thank years you. of four years of emailing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much again for your time. I am again, uh, blown away uh, by the whole dating thing and now you have changed my life trajectory <laughs> let me know how, how that goes I I, it's, it's actually one of my not my one of my major regrets but one of my minor regrets in life is wishing that I could have stayed in Singapore for a year when I was passing through for two days and, ah. and matched with 99 Tinder matches in one day. That's like, you know, later finding out that I was highlighted that day. That would have been a, a, a fascinating dating binge. To go on a dating binge. And, I could have just been a full-time dater for a few months and yeah. seen what came of that. Uh, oh, well, that's an experience I'll never have. Well, you, well, you could still, um, you know, it's uh, not too late. You're still alive. So Singapore's still here. True. <laughs> Yeah, with, with my priorities, it's I, I am where my kid is, and my kid right. is where his mother also is, and the three of mm. us have to agree on where to be, and oh. so uh, that's why my location is a compromise. Um, right, but that's okay. I, I'm I'm okay with that value. I got my values in place. My my kid is more important than dating yeah. the women of Tinder. 
well, but who knows? You still be alive in your sixties and seventies, and yeah, your kid will grow up by then, yeah, and you still featured wrinkled old senior on Tinder at seventy five. <laughs> both your kid and you could go on Tinder together. And... Oh, no. <laughs> okay, we're done here. <laughs> okay, okay, goodbye. <laughs> yeah, All right, thanks, Brian. Good talk. All right, you. thank you so much again. Bye for now. Bye bye. Bye bye. What's up, people? It's over. As usual, all show notes, links, books can be found on the website, brianvictor.com, Brian Y. And I have a newsletter now. If you guys like to have random links sent to you uh, once every two weeks of the coolest tools I am digging, uh, latest articles, uh, or uh, weird musicians or places to eat in singapore good places to eat i have i have i love to eat so much i'm telling you uh you can go to uh, my uh, website and um, sign up for the newsletter and if you guys uh, if you get it i hope you enjoy it again thank you so much for giving your time to listening to this episode i wish you to have a fantastic week ahead. Hey.